We have quite a few stories to listen to this week. As you know, if you have been following the Christmas story in a more traditional way, we celebrate Epiphany on January 6th, which was just three days ago, which means if you are the sort who waits to bring your wise ones to the manger in your own home nativity set, that they would have been waiting in some far-off place until we remember together the story of how the wise ones came from the east following the star, and they brought gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh to the Christ child. All around the world, children do receive their Christmas presents during this feast of the three kings. It's rare, I think, that as we Americans celebrate December 25th with gifts, I think it's more common that children receive their gifts when Jesus received, when we remember that Jesus received his. We also have the story from the Gospel of Luke. This is when we celebrate the the feast of the baptism of our Lord, and Luke has a very interesting retelling of the baptism. It's a brief very brief story, so short you might almost miss it, and it's almost as though we did miss it, and he tells it in hindsight when he tells it this way. In the third chapter. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Or another translation, With you I am delighted. And a third story which I want to put in the context of these other two today. From the second chapter of Luke, beginning where David left off last week. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, of course, this is Mary and Joseph in the temple in Jerusalem, where they had met Simeon and Anna, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended and they started to return, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went about a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, Why were you searching for me? 
Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in years and in divine favor. May God add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the understanding of God's holy word. There is so much I would love to say about this passage, titled, in many translations, The Boy Jesus in the Temple. I feel actually as though this story does not have Jesus as its main character, as its protagonist. I feel actually like the story is more about Mary and Joseph. As David preached last week, Jesus was born as a real baby, Mary, a real mother, Joseph, a real father, and all of them were adjusting to the new reality of what parenthood meant as they nurtured this tiny, vulnerable baby in our scripture last week at only eight days old. But in our scripture this week, I feel similarly that Mary, a real mother wrestling for the first time maybe with what it meant to have a preteen child, The same for Joseph, both of them navigating what it looked like to raise a child in a community, trusting that maybe aunties or cousins had him when in fact he had gone off on his own to learn in the temple. And I feel like Mary's anxiety that breaks through when we would love to hear, wouldn't you love to hear the questions and the answers that Jesus and these scribes and rabbis were debating, but instead in true Panicked, anxious, mother fashion, she breaks in. Child, why have you treated us like this? It's her own parental anxiety. Breaking in and scolding him, I feel like this is very much a story about Mary. And so interesting that after all of these experiences that Mary has had, encountering the angels and people coming from all around knowing who this baby is, knowing herself that he is God's own child, that she would have somehow gone about her business again, I think like we all do after epiphanies, as though life had just returned to normal and forgotten that he was God's child, forgotten so that she didn't understand when he said to her, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And she and Joseph were confused by this. So today I want to think about Jesus, the student. It's interesting that this is the only story about Jesus that comes in between the nativity stories and his ministry, which begins when he's about the age of 30, beginning then with his baptism. But then they call these, with the exception of this one snippet where he's 12 years old, the lost years. So you might be interested to know that there is a series of myths or legends, one including an elaborate hoax where a biblical scholar from Russia claimed to have found manuscripts in in a Tibetan monastery that chronicled the life of Saint Isa, or Jesus, as he trained under monks in a Buddhist monastery in Tibet. 
But I think what people are pointing at, like with any myth, is that whether or not it is true, and I don't believe it matters whether or not it is, that Jesus did journey to the East to undertake some Buddhist meditation training, which he then brought back and incorporated into his teaching of his disciples, it points to a deeper truth. There is a truth that at the heart of all of our world religions, without blending them together so that they lose their distinctive flavor, we can see that at the very heart they share such important commonalities. And at the heart of Christianity and Buddhism are these truths that we are called to become more compassionate. When Jesus says things like, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, I do not give it as the world gives, so do not let your hearts be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. He sounds very, very much like the Buddha, encouraging his followers to seek a deep peace. I read the book Holy Envy by Barbara Brown Taylor last week. And I made a mistake, I think, when I downloaded it and read it on a Kindle because I wish I had a copy to hand to you and for you to pass it along to each other. I would love it if you would find a copy and read it together and really delve into the idea that it's okay to have this holy envy, to look at the faith traditions of other people, not to compare their worst to our best or our worst to their best, but to see what deeper messages of peace and love and understanding we might gain with them so that when we return to our own faith practices, we are strengthened. It's a remarkable book. But one of the things that people who have practiced a long stretch of contemplative prayer, which we do practice in Christianity as well, or meditation in Buddhism, is that when they have attained something like a state of enlightenment, something Buddhists would call nirvana, when they have attained those deeper realizations and they can come back and explain what it was like to people who weren't on that spiritual quest with them, they, they have all of these things in common, regardless of how they describe it. And I want to read from this other book that I love. It has a funny title, which might be misleading. After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. How the Heart Grows Wise on the Spiritual Path by Jack Cornfield. And one of the things that he does is he shares firsthand accounts with people who have had these mystical experiences and then shared them with others. Here is one from an anonymous woman who spent years meditating. I was up in the mountains and awoke early when the morning was still dark. I sat so very quietly day after day, and then the most wonderful and terrible experience came. I disappeared. All that I am was washed away. I did not know its name at first, and you can't give it names, even nirvana, because it is before names, and such bliss I knew it was no longer my own heart and body. It was the world's.
and from another experience. As Gandhi said, I believe in the essential unity of all that lives. And like one related to the experience of the Apostle Paul, having this same experience of the self vanishing and having something wider, deeper, connected in its place. She describes, physically, I felt as if a great burden had been lifted from me. I felt so light. I looked down at my feet to be sure they were on the ground. Later, I thought of St. Paul's experience. Now not I, but Christ lives in me. And realized that despite my emptiness, no one else had moved in to take my place. So I decided that Christ was the joy, the emptiness itself. He was all that was left of this human experience. For days I walked with this joy. There was no mine anymore, only his. And they go on and on with these similar experiences of realizing this essential truth that I think Jesus was explaining at the heart of the Gospels that we are all one. We are one with God. We are one with one another. And we are one with all of creation. This experience of a deeper sense of enlightenment tells us how we are knit all together, one with the entire creation, one with all the universe. So we can borrow this shorthand from those who have had this experience and see how this might shape our own faith journey. Whether or not we ever achieve this, I do take it to be true, that we are deeply intertwined with all of creation. And the thing that fascinates me about the relationship with Buddhism and Christianity is that it's not just this understanding that we're connected, but it's that it invites us into a way of compassion. What matters is that if we are able to see that our striving, our longing, the things that make us furious, the things that make us anxious, the things that make us, like Mary, rushing in on a scene, not understanding what's happening, and putting herself in the middle and saying, why have you treated me like this? That we don't go through life like that. That we can see all of the ways we struggle and we strive and we can hurt. We feel all of this suffering. We can look around at all of creation and see that creation is suffering because of our striving. And then let our hearts break open and expand and feel compassion for all those around us and all of creation. I think this is our call and our challenge to live as though we have attained this, to live as though God truly does love each and every facet of creation just as much as God loves us. In our baptism, we too understand that just as God is delighted with Jesus, God is delighted with you, but God delights in all, all that God has made. And our challenge, our call as Christians, I think, is to learn to live as though this is true, 
to learn to live more carefully, to learn to deal more lovingly with everything God has made. As we picture the experience of Jesus dunked under the waters of that cold river, imagine coming up fresh, eyes wide open, skin washed clean, encounter the majesty, the wonder of God's creation anew, and hear God say to everything, all of you, you are my beloved creation. With you, I am delighted. Thanks be to God.